Welcome to the Herd Mentality Podcast, an eclectic weekly mix of atheistic and humanistic conversations with complete strangers. I've never met them and they've never met me, but we're throwing caution to the wind, taking a risk with a dodgy internet connection, and God willing, get an interesting conversation for you to listen to. I'm your host, Adam Reeks, and it's time to meet our guests. So, uh, gentlemen, welcome to the Herd Mentality Podcast. We're up to episode five and very excited. We've had all sorts of people on here and there's plenty of episodes coming up that are, I'm pretty excited about. So, Animals of Twitter is another cool. one that I've got planned and we've got some theists coming up. So, I've got some questions for you about that as well. But uh, firstly, let's go around the table. Uh, on the left, we've got Dr. Hawks. Who are you and where are you from? Hi. Um I'm a medical researcher. I did a PhD on HIV, so virology, and I now use modified viruses called viral vectors to examine the function, also the, the structure of the brain in terms of things such as addiction, um, behavior, stress, anxiety, um, and also things like circadian rhythms. Uh, the other thing that I do outside of my strict workers, I'm, I'm quite active on the interwebs in terms of combating misinformation for vaccination. And I've recently had a paper published uh, that looks at the risks and benefits of HPV vaccination in a journal called Infectious Agents and Cancer. And yeah, if you just do a search for that and David Hawkes, you'll be able to find it. And it's free to, to read. And uh, yeah. That's great. Uh after the episode we had with the Twitter rock stars, uh, you're the science rock stars, they were, uh, there was plenty of vaccination talk. After the episode, I think every one of them retweeted the link, and given that you began discussing HIV as part of your research, uh, did you have anything further to do with Mel, Atheist Mel? Um, I've, I've got in contact with Atheist Mel, and she's having a read of the paper I've passed on. I've, um, I've been quite busy with... Uh, the paper has been tweeted to over 500,000 people, and we had a follow-up article in an Australian... Uh, the biggest independent Australian media website called The Conversation that I've been... I wrote and drafted, so uh, that and some radio interviews have taken up a lot of my time, but she she seemed excited by HIV, so I, I will find my people and we will chat, I'm sure. Excellent. All right, so we'll go on to Kai Matai. Um, yeah, so I'm, I guess, a very traditional zoologist. Most of the work the last few years has been on crocodilians, which means I, I get to go to odd places in the Asia-Pacific and hang around with very large predatory reptiles or often some very small venomous ones, and sometimes, of course, gun-waving locals or bomb-planting insurrectionists. Have you seen a Komodo dragon in the wild? I um, haven't done Indonesia. I've done Papua New Guinea and um, a little bit of further up wow. East Asia. All over the place? Um, I, I turn up in odd places, yeah. It's, um, New Zealanders are really good at travelling and surprising people with where we end up. <laughs> We're having a little bit of a chat before we started recording about accents. Uh, is there one thing you could say that, uh, in 25 words or less, help people in other countries distinguish between an Australian and a Kiwi accent? Probably the, the vowels. Kiwis tend to swallow their vowels more than Australians. Easy so. as that, guys. Try it yourselves at home. Yeah. And over on the other side of the planet, we've got Godfrey World. Welcome. Hi, thanks. Thanks for having me. It's a full lineup today. It's a full lineup of science fun. As, as I've begun more engaging in Twitter and 
taking more of an interest in atheism, I've begun to be very sceptical about where I'm looking at for sources of information. You would class yourselves as experts in your field. Yeah. yeah I, I think we, we know stuff. <laughs> but it's a, it's a, it's yeah, a very try, specific... Yeah, try to keep up pretty well. Yeah. It's a very specific... It's a comparative thing. term. So just a couple of things from previous episodes, and I'll throw this in to the podcast. A gentleman got in touch with me called Peter. He Peter H. He wanted to point out that Michelle Barkman, one of the crazies I was talking about in a previous episode, was from Minnesota. And Gabby Giffords recently stumped for the GC bill. I'm not quite sure I understand that, so we're going to have to go to our resident Godfrey world. Hmm. Gun control. Something gun control. This is what this is what it must relate to. Ah, of course, okay. Gabby Giffords is the Arizona politician who was so badly wounded. That's uh, right. Gunshot head, uh, gunshot wound to the head. Yeah, and it's we'll... remarkable that she survived. And, um, she's a, a real inspiration. Her, her husband is a, is an astronaut. I have been having a little bit of fun with Deepak Chopra lately. Have you heard much of his work? His inane tweets appear at the top of the, the atheist hashtag too often. Too often. How do you think he's got this far? Um, he has a large number of followers who retweet, and that bumps it up. I think he's gotten this far by vagueness. <laughs> he, he, he tries to keep a positive attitude. He gives people what they want, which is some sort of general vague spirituality. And, um, he, he, of course, he, he cannot, won't be pinned down by anything. You're obviously very well respected, the three of you, and I think you spend a lot of time engaging with your listeners, as does Deepak. So people go to you for more credible information how do you respond very quickly in a brief tweet always give both sides i think i think that's the thing you're talking about depacking you, you you talk about a lot of these other people and the thing and you talk about credible sources of information i find that i never say vaccinations are safe because there is a risk and i'm also sort of quite active in in terms of examining alternative medicines and things like that and I always say there's something as wackadoo as homeopathy. It works, but it works as well as placebo. So I find that giving people short bits of information with balance is, I think, how you build a reputation as being somebody who's not an issue-based person. Like, I don't consider myself a pro-vax person. I think myself as an evidence-based person, which I guess is how I got to atheism as well, because mm. um, I'm prepared to change my view on atheism. If, if there's irrefutable, repeatable, provable proof, I'm prepared to change it. And I think that getting that sort of out there sort of separates you from someone like Deepak Chopra, who, who will make a statement and when called on it, as I said, he's deliberately vague, but if he does sort of push and try and get something in, which you, you see with a, a number of other people, then and he gets called on it, he just ignores it. No, the answer is always cosmic consciousness. <laughs> so... Uh. Godfrey World, how would you define atheism for a theist? Because I know there's, I've been contacted by quite a few theists who listen to the show. Some of them are happy, some of them are very unhappy. Actually, no, that, that's, that's unfair to say. Actually, I, I will, they were very, very approachable. Every one of them who I contacted was, was very approachable. So how would you define mm. atheism for those guys listening if they were a little bit more interested in it but weren't curious about finding it out through the new, usual Twitter channels where it's very common for you to get shot down? Mm-hmm. Well, uh, you know, I get to ask this pretty regularly on, on Twitter. It's a, it's frequently necessary to define atheism for theists who take every opportunity that they can to, you know, to hijack the definitions of all words. And very frequently they, of course, insist that atheism is the absolute insistence that there is no God. And, um, that's not, that's not my view. Um, 
I think mm, something I was thinking about when we were talking about sort of the nature of being a you know being a credible source was that uh, scientists are by their nature kind of cautious about what they want to really plant a flag on in terms of ideas. We're professionally we deal with ideas in terms of how much how much relative support do they have. We can hold an idea in our mind that may or may not be um, in the long run true, but we can hold it as a hypothesis that we um, slowly gather information in relation to. So battling this black and white worldview is one of the things that I find so challenging on Twitter. There's so many people, and theists, I, I think a lot of theism really promotes this idea that there's a, you know, there's a, there, that certainty is a good thing. And um, many of them claim certainty, of course, that there is a God. I do not claim an equal certainty that there is no God. I, I don't believe it's a scientific hypothesis that there is an omnipotent God that is determined to hide himself from <laughs> from everybody. If he's omnipotent and wants to hide, then there's no way that we can prove him wrong. If he wants to hide, he's a bad God. <laughs> there's plenty of stuff to get right. fixed. Well, that's, yeah, I think you can infer something about the nature of the God if that's his choice in doing that. But for me as a scientist, I approach it, you know, if you want to approach it scientifically, my my approach is, that is an unfalsifiable hypothesis. I can do nothing with it. I'm never going to be able to prove that idea wrong. And like any other unfalsifiable hypothesis, I'm just going to toss it aside. It, maybe it's right. Maybe it's not. I, I can never say anything about it, and so I choose not to accept it. But that's not a certain belief that there is no God. That's not my definition of atheism. Yeah. Uh, if I could, in danger of shooting myself down here, considering the nature of this this podcast, I... I actually don't care what someone believes. Um, I'm more than happy for someone to have a belief in a, a deity, a god, a rock, anything. It does not bother me at all. It's a belief. I believe my football team can win the grand final every year. Again, not necessarily <laughs> evidence-based, but it is a belief. Where, And if you actually look at how I interact, my issue is when you take a belief which is not based on evidence by definition. And there are Christians and, and other people that I have complete respect for because they say, this is my belief, there is no evidence to support it, but it is my belief. And I can live with that. Where I have issues is when they try and take this belief, which has no evidence base, and use that as a way of influencing evidence. So if in Australia, a, a number of you be aware, we've been having a, a long and lengthy debate, and I, I believe uh, there's been happening in the US as well about gay marriage. I think there was um, the guy from Star Trek got 17,000 likes in under a minute mm-hmm. last night when DOMA was uh, repealed. Mm-hmm. And this is about religion. It, essentially, it's like marriage is a legal act in Australia. We don't have a state religion. It's different in other countries. And if you want to get married, I don't care. I don't, it doesn't makes no difference to me whether you're married, whether you're a heterosexual couple, a gay couple, I don't care. But if you say that my religion says this is wrong, then this can't be the law for everybody else. That's where I have issue. And it, and it comes into things like evolution and abiogenesis and all that sort of stuff. So I agree I, completely. Yeah, I really don't care what somebody believes. If they want to believe some crazy thing in their mind, that's perfectly all right by me. Um, but when they begin to try to influence public policy using uh, poor rationale, then that becomes problematic. I think, though, there's, there's also a problem with the, the Abrahamic religions is because they are, by their nature, you know, hegemonic. They, they are trying to influence policies at social and political levels, and we see that being played out so often. I oh, think yeah. The, there's a, there's a, a movement in the U.S., the, uh, the Dominionists. Have you heard of these guys? Yeah. 
Yeah. Rick no. Perry is uh, Rick Perry uh-huh. and Michelle Bachman are among the practitioners, and they're 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 as I understand it. I'm no expert in Dominionism, but uh, as I understand it, their their goal is to have the United States be a Christian nation and have put Christians in in places of power, both in government and in society. Um, that's their view of what society should be like. Uh, I, I think I became that's what's happened more, already. And became more anti-theist after 9/11, and I, I think. The um, mm-hmm. Catholic scandals of child abuse, and you know, the, the idea that this, this is a quaint private belief that doesn't hurt anyone um, has been somewhat shaken. Somewhat shaken. There's plenty going on in uh, the the Australian papers at the moment with a gentleman by the name of at Peter Fox, fifty nine. He's the inspector who shed the light on a lot of the abuse scandal in the Catholic Church. Yeah, yeah so <clears throat> he's kind of fighting yeah, against... I, I can't remember in the, the, the 80s, like, the, the church was up against, you know, communist oppressive governments in Eastern Europe or apartheid in South Africa, and, and now now it's a lot more about hiding pedophiles and trying to protect their own patch, their reputation. It's pretty scary. So I've had plenty of people talking to me about creationism, and this is a, a question that we roll oh, consistently on with, uh, with Twitter, a lot of the people who I've recently met on Twitter, they, they'll pick one argument, you know, somebody makes a, a blanket statement about, I can't believe that it only took God seven days to make the world five days, or however many it is in whatever book. Having spoken to probably a lot more theists about this, certainly on Twitter, what is the most common date that they give for the age of the world? 6,000 there is the one, one I've come across most There isn't one. They, they can't agree. That's a very good point. No, there, there's no agreement <laughs> whatsoever. Yeah. There, this, this is a point that I made recently. There is no creationism. There are almost as many creationisms as there are creationists. They all have a mix and match set of ideas that they have about the about, about the creation of the world. Of course, the the Bishop Usher date of uh, 4004 BC, which puts it at about 6,000 years old right now, that has a long history, and that's where the 6,000 year date comes from. And some of them some of them cling to that. Some of them have, you know tinkered with the chronology a little bit from the Bible, ended up with anything from from four to 10,000 years. But many creationists accept an older Earth as well. So it's across Earth. the board. <laughs> Don't know about that. There is a Flat Earth Society guy on Twitter that uh, is fun to interact with. Oh, excellent. I'll have to check him out. He sounds like another <laughs> another pot of gold, and that's exactly what I'm here for. Uh, <laughs> oh, yeah, it's, it's quite remarkable. Sorry, sorry, I didn't mean to speak over you, but I, I, I test myself to see how many ways I can disprove the flat earth idea with him. I'm, I'm up to about a dozen different, quite fundamentally different approaches to disproving a flat earth, but of course he never accepts any of them. I tweeted something Fuck about yeah. that the other day and said, well, if there was a flat earth convention, where would they all fly to? Where's the central point? <laughs> See, I, I think Top Gear actually disproves the Flat Earth quite well. Uh, when they go to test one of, I think it's the Bugatti Veyron Sport, they go to uh, one of the, the courses in Germany, and it's got a straight so long you can actually see it curve and disappear. Mm. That was. <laughs> and if Jeremy Clarkson can outsmart you, it's time to give up. 
<laughs> I think they do it in a very entertaining way. I mean, it, that's basically the same principle that I, you perhaps might remember the name of the scientist who discovered it, where they used a creek or a river or one of those very long straight channels in England and measured the height of the water as it curved around the earth. Alfred Wallace did that as to win a bit with right? a flat earthist. Ah. ah well, there you I go. like that. I don't have to do any research after the show. That makes me very happy. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I want to say it was Eratosthenes who showed the difference in the length of the shadow of a stick planted in the ground at different latitudes, wasn't it? Therefore proved that the earth was round and, and came up with a measure, an estimate of the diameter of the earth, which was quite close. Yes. Yep. Yeah, people who live close to the sea seem to work out a, a spherical earth fairly quickly and, and people who spent a lot of time <laughs> watching sheep graze in Middle Eastern pastures did not. Do you often get asked about evolution? You must do. Yes, all the time. No. All the time. But you'd be able to, uh, yeah. you'd be able to see uh, evolution firsthand with viruses and the like. Uh, essentially, one of uh, a really close friend of mine and a colleague, uh, Dr. Redmond Smith, who I did my PhD with, his entire PhD was looking at the mutation rate of the HIV genome because HIV is around 10,000 bases long and it's RNA. So when it gets into a cell, it has to transform itself to DNA and it gets in and it starts creating more more viruses. But because of that system, it doesn't have a proofreading system. So our DNA, we don't get lots and lots of mutations. We get them occasionally, but we can actually repair them, whereas the virus, it doesn't. So you get between 30 and 80 mutations per round of replication. So 10,000 letters, 30 to 80 change every time. And and it just means that some of them won't change the actual protein. Some of them will be catastrophically bad for the virus. Some of them will be good or because obviously selection, when you introduce drug treatments for people with HIV, you select for these, these types. I think I'm remembering a few years ago, but when you actually look at the different genotypes somebody has who's had HIV for a number of years, you can have up to 400 different sort of slightly modified versions of the same strain of virus. So we can actually watch evolution. We can come into work on a Monday. We can see evolution by a Friday. Yeah, right. And how quick is the turnaround on one lifespan of... Because RNA is only one strand. That's why it's so fragile. It it can't protect itself. Is that right? Uh, in humans, it's generally one strand. In the virus, it's actually got a double-stranded RNA genome. So it is moderately robust. But in terms of a life cycle of a virus, if you... Infect a cell uh, with a virus within 24 hours easily, you can have more virus produced. So when we were doing these, when when Red was doing these in uh, these experiments, he'd infect the virus, leave it 24 hours, and then stop the experiment so that he could sort of say, well, this has only undergone one round of replication. And so yeah, it can go very fast, but it can also slow down and hide and not actually replicate, just squirrel away in certain cells, and that's why it's such a, it's why we don't have um, a cure. So you've seen evolution firsthand. Kaimatai in New Zealand, what evolution have you experienced firsthand, if any? Um, well, I guess the crocodilians are always a good example, but in, also in New Zealand, um, all, all our, our birds tend to, to do, exhibit a lot of evolution. Um, we can see that um, translocations onto islands, variations in bird songs, um, which match genetic connections. Um, the whole thing about having all our flightless birds has been a, a great and wonderful mystery because um, they have to come from flying ancestors in the past yeah or they'd just be very very tired after swimming to new zealand yes it's about two thousand <laughs> kilometers of open ocean so from the ark <laughs> oh well hang on no we've still got the ark idea let's not uh, let's yeah, not be so quick to poo-poo the idea. Sea. 
yeah, so so a poor Kiwi had to make it all the way from the modern Turkey down Asia through Australia and then some 2,000 kilometres is a little little challenging. You got free world. Yeah, well, my specialty is human paleontology, so I uh, I I certainly do a lot of work on living primates. I'm interested in their diversity, and there are something over 300 living species of primates, and you can see the patterns of their features vary with the degree of evolutionary relatedness among them, and um, we use the variation among them as, uh, as an indicator of the kind of repeated patterns that occur when primates face certain kinds of selection pressures. My real specialty is dietary adaptation, and you can see their skulls change in in patterned ways, you know, science is about looking for regularity. You can see the you can see the skulls of different primates vary in ways that are uh, that are tell us a lot about the nature of adaptation to diet. And um, we can then use those patterns and many more that we understand about the nature of uh, locomotor adaptation and um, you know a wide range of different things that we understand based on living primates, where we take observational data from living primates and. Uh, comparative data on how they differ from one another and we apply that to the fossil record. The goal, of course, is to establish regular principles, what we would call laws, that can be used both to explain things and also to predict things. And um, when we dig up fossils, uh, we can we can look at the details of uh, many aspects of their skeletal anatomy and make a lot of inferences about what their daily lives were like and about the changes in the course of the evolutionary uh, changes in the course of their evolution over the past several million years and uh, you know we're upwards of over 20 species of human ancestors and relatives now and um, we have a quite a fine-grained fossil record for many of those and you can see them change through time in the fossil record so that's well, this is what this, I, the study you know, of... don't sit there and watch evolution happening because it takes a long time but when you have six million years of fossil record to look at or even longer you can you can see it <laughs> So you look back over time, over vast, vast, vast distances of time. What would be your prediction for where we're next going to evolve? Are we going to have more opposable thumbs for Twitter or where are we heading? Are we get, cause what, one of the points I heard raised by, um, Dr. Chris Smith on the Naked Scientist podcast was he said, he seems to think that the stronger, the, those of us who survive and continue to pass our genes on to future generations will evolve a method whereby we can manage higher calorie loading in our diet. That's possible. Um, but look, this is an interesting question. It really touches on something that is one of the most fundamental misunderstandings that you see among people on Twitter, people generally. There's this long-standing view of evolution as being this kind of ladder of progress, you know, the, the old scala natura idea that existed even before yeah. evolutionary ideas came along. And evolution got imprinted on that and... Um, and it is extremely difficult to eradicate that notion. Evolution doesn't happen by going from point A to point B. It's always a complex branching speciation pattern with a lot of complexity. If you look at the human fossil record now, all those over 20 species, that's not a, 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 a line of progress from something 6 million years old up to us. It's a, a rich, diverse branching pattern of relationships. And uh, if you were to... Pick any point at, on that 
on that branch and try to anticipate what the future was going to be like, it would be very challenging. That being said, I think that if we're going to be a science that we need to have predictive power. And uh, there are a lot of things that if we knew what the nature of the selection pressures are that we would face in the future, we could have a pretty good idea of what direction our evolution would take. But it's kind of silly ideas of, well, our brains are going to keep on getting bigger and our jaws are going to keep on getting smaller. And, you know, I, I think the way that aliens are depicted in the movies is frequently our understanding of uh, our sort of our thought of what we'll be like. You know, they're futuristic and advanced. And so that's what we'll be like. And uh, that all of that is nonsense, you know, evolution works fitness is uh, relates to the individuals that have the most offspring so if you look on the planet today at the individuals that are having the most offspring that's probably a better guide to what our future is going to be like than some kind of notion of uh, how often we tweet yeah i I imagine that's Um, probably inverse related to number of offspring in fact i think uh, i mean I, i think i'd pick it up from there in terms of that i i'm not a an archaeologist, I don't know about skull size and jaw size, but where where it interacts with my field, I think that you're looking at what people are dying of, and obviously people are dying of old age in most Western countries, or, or stress, or cardiovascular-related events, diabetes, heart attacks, strokes. If you're actually looking at the people having the most kids, they're dying of infectious diseases. They're dying of things like malaria, to a lesser extent, things like HIV. And all those. And with global warming, I know that in Australia, because the mosquitoes are able to, to come further south, you're getting viruses that we, we didn't, we don't have in Victoria and we, but are coming down here. Things like, uh, Kundan and Murray Valley encephalitis and malaria will probably come. Um, and so I think the people whose immune systems are able to develop or to interact with these, these viruses or these pathogens in the case of malaria, or, or bacterias, or all those sorts of things. These will be the ones that, that have that selective advantage, particularly when you look in a third world uh, environment where you don't have vaccination programs to sort of level the playing field. Coming on to the back of that, I, I think you know, if you look at human populations, we have been hammered heavily in the past by diseases. You don't have to think of the Black Death or um, the plagues during the Roman Empire, which wiped out you know, very large percentages of the human population. And, and even Spanish in the early flu. 20th century, um, you know, disease was a really, really big killer. Um, things like smallpox, TB, killed horrific numbers of people. Hmm. Yeah, the influenza of 1918 killed off, I, I forget what percentage it was, something 10 to 20% of the population. So ultimately we're, we need to get off this planet. Well, <laughs> this is actually, I think, where evolution helps. Is if we, we actually look at things like um, some of these diseases, um, you know, we, we need evolutionary tools. And, and what we've often learnt with things like antibiotics is, is that animals have a, a suite of antibiotics they use to try and ward off infections. You know, crocodiles have an amazing collection of them. Um, and we, we sort of often focus on one antibiotic and we use that for a while and then when that becomes overtaken we have to come up with a new one. We, we may be entering a point where we actually have to imitate biological systems better and come up with sort of suites of, of medicines that um, don't give the diseases the chance to react. That's a tricky one with, with reptiles being cold-blooded. Surely there's a lot that you can and can't apply to the way humans treat them. Um, no, but what I'm, I'm meaning is, is if we look at medical applications of antibiotics, mm. we use one antibiotic, penicillin. If you look at how animals deal with naturally, they actually have a suite of, of chemicals they might use to ward off disease. Mm-hmm. And that makes it harder for um, bacteria and the like to to evolve to um, develop immunity because you've got if you go one direction you get hit by another another chemical. Hmm. 
um, we we've gone for a, a very you know one shot approach, and, and you know that's generated a lot of disease resistant bacteria and diseases. Uh, we're going to have to um, apply a bit of evolutionary knowledge and, and think about matrices of treatments with a variety of, of, of tools. The other thing you can do is you, you look at, um, I mean, I, I work in genetic tools, so I'm obviously a little bit biased, but um, you look at, I mean, we, we look at these genetic conditions like sickle cell anemia or you look at cystic fibrosis. The reason they're around is because having one copy of the gene gave you a selective advantage. Again, back to evolution. If we can actually get to a point, if, if we come to a point where we have a pathogen that is that much of an issue, you'll be able to use perhaps the genetic knowledge in terms of why this particular protein gives an advantage and use that to actually craft something that's been tried and tested. I mean, you know, sickle cell anemia and malaria have been around for thousands of years and it still works. So, so maybe if we kind of go back to what actually works in nature, but in our own nature rather than, I mean, I'm a big supporter of some of the stuff that's been done in extracting um, venoms and, and using those because I used to work next to the Australian Venom Unit and some of the stuff they did with going hunting for scorpions was fantastic. But I think we forget about ourselves as a great reservoir of information. Yeah, and regarding having already a repository of information, I read about a meta-study that was done where they where the team looked at existing drugs that were already being given to people for, say, I suppose Viagra is probably the easiest one because everyone is familiar with it, but it was given for uh, a heart condition and the side effects were fairly obvious. Um, (laughs) But because it had already been tested on humans, it was therefore viable for distribution for another, another means. So we're beginning to find out more and more about what existing treatments can do to help other ailments. Uh, one, of the, one of the great joys and annoyances of my scientific career is back in my honours days, I, I published a paper that looked at uh, drugs, so the angiotensin type 1 receptor. So it's the drugs that end in sarton. And we found that when these were, again, rats, Older rats were given this, their prostate size shrank, and essentially it looked to be a really effective treatment for benign prostate hyperplasia, which is when, as you get older as a guy, as Billy Connolly put it, your prostate, which is the size of a donut, becomes the size of a bagel, and uh, essentially it puts pressure on your bladder and pressure on your urethra, and it's, it's why older men have to get up, and it affects, I think, 60 or 70% of men over 60, and it just kind of climbs. And so by switching drugs from an ACE inhibitor, which targets an upstream, to an AT1 receptor antagonist, which, you know, is one step down, and there's obviously a whole bunch of medical issues, but when all things being equal, if you shift to that, you should be able to see a, a reduction in prostate size for a drug that's being used for a population that's probably been given it anyway. Um, but And I've been waiting for 10 years to see someone follow up on that because my supervisor left science, but uh, I, I'm still waiting for it. Well, everybody has, all, all the men at least, have prostate cancer over a certain age. Like if you test X percentage of, and correct me if I'm wrong, X percentage of the population over, say, 65, they all have it to some degree. It's just whether or not it's um, active or aggressive. Yeah, I think, I think that... Uh, Every, uh, uh, the phrase of what we always gave in our presentations was every man dies with prostate cancer, but not every man dies of prostate cancer. I think it accounts for, and again, throwing my numbers back a few years, about 11% of deaths. So it's still a very prominent disease, but when you look at, it's like colon cancer, a lot of the time it's quite slow growing, and so it can actually be picked up, but how it's picked up is 
again, another topic of debate with the, the PSA levels not being particularly effective. And so there's new work being done on being able to actually measure this more accurately. But didn't I see somebody, uh, a student, I think they were very young, 15 or 16, created a new $2 uh, prostate test? They completely revolutionised the way that it was done. Was it prostate cancer or was it another type of illness? Uh, I, I remember seeing something, but I didn't didn't follow up on it. But that's the stuff that I find fantastic. It's like you can be a professor, you can be the head of a university, and you can be shown up by a 15-year-old because science does not care. I've been taught so much by... I had students come into lab for a six-week placement, and one of them just finds a better way of doing something because it's what they focused on. They kind of went, well, I'm sick of having to carry this and do this and this for taking four hours, so... How can I make it shorter or, or how can I make it more effective? And I, I'm, I really know my limitations and I know that I don't know everything and I'm willing to learn off anyone. And that's one of the reasons why I sort of, I'm quite active on social media because I, there's so much knowledge out there. And if I just collaborate with people that I associate with professionally, I'm, I'm, I'm missing out. Yeah, well, on that Twitter collaboration, Twitter seems to be such a good way of communicating with other people in your field very quickly. Like, I've come on and very quickly met a lot of people who are in such a precise field, which is called it atheism. <laughs> that's, defi- <laughs> that's precise. But uh, do you correspond with other scientists on uh, me personally, I'm, I'm sort of, I've made a lot of connections. I, um, I'm the Victorian convener of the Australian Society of Medical Research, and my deputy is someone who I'm she was involved in the committee, but I got to know her through Twitter and, and she's come on board as my deputy. So that's, that's one of them. And one of the guys that I work with again through Twitter, um, the, the paper that we recently published was a little bit different. I met them through Facebook. So there was someone in Adelaide, someone in Wollongong, and we kind of had this idea for a paper. I would never have met them professionally, but we, we had a similar like in this case, combating anti-vaccination messages. And that's how we wrote the paper. I haven't actually ever met one of the authors, um, so it's 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 certainly out there, and it's I, I thought what we'd done was quite unique, but apparently it's been done a number of times. So yeah, um, it's definitely something I'm involved in, and I'm uh, yeah, I think it's great. Cool. Well, the, so how much trouble is the AVN in at the moment? Because they copped a bit of a hiding, didn't they? The the, the basic overline is for anyone who's unfamiliar with the Australian Vaccination Network uh, was started in 1994. It's in an area uh, of Australia in northern New South Wales called Northern Rivers, which has the lowest vaccination rate in Australia. Essentially, they say that vaccinations aren't proven, they don't work, um, but refuse to say they're anti-vaccination. They say they're pro-choice. About four years ago, this group stopped the AVN, started on Facebook, and since then, there's been a whole bunch of things. In the Australian Federal Parliament on Monday, there was a motion passed by the Senate saying that they should disband. It's not legally binding, but, you know, when the Australian Parliament's against you, it's normally a good sign. Um, they're being investigated for fraud. They were raking in $300,000 a year, never actually did anything or produced anything. They also had a magazine that came out six times a year that in, was cancelled in 2012, and in 2011 and 2012 it came out once, and people subscribed to it and never got their money back, didn't get a substitution. That's being investigated. They're in court. There's a decision pending on whether they should change their name because it's misleading. There's all these different bits and pieces. And essentially, it, it, it was the focal point. And when we started in 2009, when they had a vaccination case on television, and this really relates to evolution because they had a debate about evol- had vaccination. They'd have 
a professor of vaccine, you know, who's infectious diseases doctor, who's works on vaccines, and they'd have the president of the AVN as the counterpoint. And I mean, Dara O'Brien, I'm sure you're all familiar with it, is you don't have a guy from NASA talking about how they're going to put a satellite up there and then turn to Barry, who believes the sky is a carpet woven by God. And yeah. this is what we were aiming to put it because... Yeah, vaccinations have risk without a doubt. And this information needs to be out there, but it also needs to be given its proper weighting. Your chances of getting encephalitis from measles is one in a thousand, from the vaccination is one in a million. When measles gets into a population, it hits about 86% of people. So when you put those numbers together, it, it sort of clarifies a lot of the issues. It is life-saving stuff. There was uh, a doctor surgery in Picton, I think it was. Uh, they've got the highest vaccination rate of children in Australia. Picton's really not far from the AVN location that you're talking about. It's also in New South Wales. The doctor surgery just calls everybody up and hassles them until they come in and get their vaccination. And the, they've got their protective coverage for their large population. There's also another, on the other side of the coin, another place down near, I think it's down the south coast of Australia near Bega. And they've got also one of the lowest vaccination rates. And we can see in real time that there's people falling ill people dying it's happening in wales i think at the moment uh we talked and we spoke about it previously on the show in in uh the u.s so there's areas over there where they've got outbreaks as well so it's still occurring all around the world it's just ignorance that's stopping it from being wiped out entirely or, or close to yeah i mean when you've got i mean there's things like polio which is down to three countries when that stops being in anybody any humans that's gone there's no other reservoir that's why smallpox went obviously bacterial things are a bit different but with the viruses, a lot of them, they're only host as humans. I think measles only host as humans. When you get the day when not a single person on Earth has measles, that's it. It's gone. It is removed from this planet already. We've already got one strain. Sorry. It's removed from this planet. Polio type 2 does n no longer exists. So, yeah. All right. I did have one question I'll read off to you quickly. This one came through from Dominic's name on Twitter is at MXOOM. And he asked a question about gravity. In your experience with debating people, what is the most misunderstood aspect of the science you discuss? Would it be evolution or gravity? Evolution, easily. There are clearly a lot of people who seem to think that dinosaurs and humans both walk the earth together how in one sentence how can we prove that oh that's not right uh, well if dna is the usual answer i come up with because we can recover dna from animals that are basically less than a hundred thousand years old there are lots and lots of dinosaur fossils and we have absolutely no dna from any of them because they're all 65 million plus and they're buried within different layers of sediment and there's there's that as well but even if you were going to try and challenge the the fossil evidence, you can't sort of challenge the genetic. You know, we know that DNA degrades at a fairly constant rate unless it's exceptional. It's all gone by 100,000 years. Um, we have human DNA from Neanderthals and, and other things. We have nothing from any dinosaur fossil anywhere. And if they coexisted, we'd have lots. There's a little bit of ambiguity with the uh, the language that they use as well, the, the theists as they ask. They say it's a, a theory of evolution. Theory's not proven. Theory in a scientific term is something different. Theory, in my understanding of it, I know people are much better at than and have much clearer view, but as someone who's a bit of a layperson in some of the, the terminology of science, I'm just a simple biologist, a theory is something that you can predict, well, you can explain everything that comes up. And so when something new comes up, can it be explained by this theory? Fantastic. But its predictive value is not perfect. Like 
With the theory of evolution, if there's a fossil that's found, and this has occurred every single time, we can see where it fits in. But I can't necessarily, as as they said, talking about the different primates, I can't say, well, this is where we are now. I can predict in 100,000 years we will be here because it, it doesn't really work like that. And we certainly don't know enough about the environments and particularly the localised environments 60, like 120 million years ago. And so that's how I sort of understand Theories, whereas you look at, and, and gravity is certainly a theory because there's a whole bunch of things, although we can predict it most of the time, doesn't kind of work. Yeah. There, there was actually um, a whole suite of papers on what is, is a proper scientific theory in the, the 80s when the, um, I think it was the Equal Time campaign or one of the, um, the regular creationist campaigns were was underway and, and a lot of that was um philosophers of science michael ruse looking at you know what is actually a, a scientific theory and, and creationism of course failed everything and, and um, evolution passed uh, a theory in, in one sense is um has been noted it's it's a, an explanation for a whole bunch of facts that we understand um but it, you know it's it's more than that there's a bit of predictionism in it um there's also something else which I, I like to call fecundity. Good scientific theory is something that produces lots of new areas of research. And if you look at evolution, it's been fantastic. You know, plate tectonics, um, genetics, biogeography, um, all sorts of things have been coming out of that. Um, and it keeps sp- spawning new and new hypotheses in research. So it's, it's an incredibly powerful scientific theory. How often are transitional fossils being discovered and filling in the gaps? How quickly is that record being filled out? And it's never going to be perfect. At what sort of well, rate are we growing our knowledge here? Well, I, I, think, I think we need to distinguish paleontology, which is one branch of biology, from the theory of evolution. In terms of the, the actual theory of evolution, the number of fossils we need to prove that evolution occurs is zero. We don't need any. We have more than enough evidence at the genetic and molecular level and biogeographic and all these other other things. Yeah. Um, but in terms of transitional fossils, I mean, if you're reading Nature or the like, these things are being pumped out fairly regularly. Um, the the bird um, evolutionary track is, is actually now pretty well described. Um, artiodactyls to to whales is pretty well described. Um, things like some of the, the, the trilobites, we have thousands, sometimes millions of these fossils which, which map out very, very nice transitions. Foraminifera um, are all over the place. Um, they're used by oil geologists to try and work out where oil deposits are because they're metres thick in the seafloor. It's, it's one of these, these odd things where we're creationists, we're going, you know, there, there should be millions of fossils, and we go, well, there are. <laughs> <laughs> go to go to the Labria tar pits alone. There's, there's over three million fossils have been excavated from just that site, and not one of this them is, is this listed is part on Conservopedia.com. Yeah, this is <laughs> this is all part of the ruse of the creationists. This is all part of their trick understanding of evolution that they present. That I think they actually believe, which is incredibly simplistic, is this notion of of, of literally this ladder of progress that I was referring to before. So the idea of transitional fossils is, you know, you map that on there and you should find basically everybody and their mother all the way back through time. That's an absurd prediction. <laughs> no, no paleontologist believes that that will ever happen. That is not how it works. Uh, evolution produces this vastly complex, richly branching pattern. And, uh, you know, in a sense, every single fossil that we find is a member of a population that was transitional. 
we are a member of a transitional species. So uh, this idea of trans, uh, paleontologists, uh, evolutionary biologists don't talk about transitional fossils. That is creationist terminology. And to even talk about trans- transitional fossils is to play into this simplistic notion that we go from point A to point B and, you know, living humans or living species were the end goal of all of this. It's a, it's a fiction. It's a cartoon model. And paleontologists don't even talk in those terms. I, I think that's that's obvious when you you read the, the paleontology papers. I think creation start with the idea that a species is like this discrete box that you sort of leap from one to the next. Um, whereas, I, I kind of think that species are more like a signpost and a, a flow of, of genetic information over time. We put them into the ground at regular points to say this is where we're going or we have been. And in that sense, we're actually mapping a whole matrix of traits, matrix of traits. With birds were after you know, when the, the flight feathers appeared, when the the, the keel and the, the the chest appeared, when the um, the hallux, that's the, the the toe sort of reversed its orientation. All of these are, are matrices, a matrix of characteristics that we're, we're trying to map, not these little discrete boxes jumping from one to the next. Well, this is something important also. Species, um, you know, the uh, the 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 creationist notion of evolution is that. Um, you know, you start with, say, human evolution. You start with, uh, you start with an ape, something that looks like a chimp, and then you, uh, you know, you put it into one of these computer programs that gradually morphs the entire thing from an ape to what a modern human looks like. That's not how evolution happens. Evolution happens trait by trait in what we call a mosaic pattern. And, uh, it is not a simple linear gradual progression in every trait from one species into another. It's just an unrealistic notion and simplistic notion and they take advantage of that fact, right? They, whether they understand it or not, they take advantage of this simplistic notion and this sort of public misunderstanding to propagate these notions and to then ridicule uh, a straw man. It is not what evolutionary biologists claim and it's easy to ridicule but that is not what we claim. So it's all tactics. Quite honestly, I've been following the creationists a long time. I yep. yelled at Dwayne Gish 25 years ago <laughs> in a debate. <laughs> uh, and I, I they have, yeah, they have these, they have these, this bag of tricks that they employ and they continue to employ them because they work and they prey on the misunderstanding and the ignorance of the general public. Thing that I, I don't think yeah, I've heard I'm, a new argument from a creationist in 25 years. It's just, it's just the same stuff recycled over and over again. And we've built a large hadron collider in that time. <laughs> yeah. we've, we've, we've cracked the human genome. And I guess that's, that's what I, if I can just jump in there, this is, this is the thing that really you talk about, they talk about transitional fossils and, you know, humans are the pinnaclers. When, we're not a uniform group of people. We, we don't have the same alleles. You look at genetic codes, we're all quite different and you look at things that are as blatantly clear in, you know, the amount of blue eyes or the amount of skin tones and these sorts of things change over time this is a selective pressure for whatever that could be but we are not there's no i know that um the swedish guy who uh, classified all the the magnuson was it uh classified all the what's that sorry linnaeus Linnaeus. yeah and you know he he wanted his skeleton to be the you know archetypal human skeleton (laughs) which they couldn't do because he uh i think he had syphilis and a lot of 
bony growths, well, and that's why there is... That rules me out, too. The bony growths, say it's the bony growths. I've, I've had a knee reconstruction, so I'm out. But we don't have a standard human skeleton, let alone the biochemistry, let alone the immune system. And the thing that is great and the thing that we survive in is because you do see evolution just purely on genes, you know. You get people with cystic fibrosis are most common from, I think, Scotland because of, of typhoid. And you get people with the thalassemias are generally from the Mediterranean because there was selective pressure there. So evolution is still occurring. And we're not suddenly going to become 25 foot tall or have brains like an alien. What will happen is a, a gene, you know, there could be a gene that, or a particular allele that gives you protection against a pandemic SARS that breaks out. And then suddenly that will become overwhelmingly the most common because people with it will live and therefore breed. And we won't look any different. We won't sound any different, but this will have been evolution taking place. Well, the gene that allows us to metabolize alcohol is something that sets us... I lived in Asia for quite a bit, so I've drunk quite a bit of um, alcohol with some Vietnamese people. I can tell you that their response to it is quite different to mine. Clearly, we're genetically very different, but genetically similar enough to still be the same the same people, effectively. There's a, it's not especially clear there. As you say, put somebody into one box. Well, this is one of the big tensions... Not tensions. This is one of the basic things that biology deals with, right? It's the battle against essentialism. Old Plato really did us in, and we've been struggling with this notion, and the and the theology picked it up and ran with it, along with teleology. Um, you know, this idea of purposefulness in everything, and the idea of the of things having an essence. Biology is anti-essentialism. We study diversity. It's in the nature of the field that we that we are employed in, and um, people don't understand that because they think in very essentialistic fashion. You know, if you ask them what a person is, they'll list traits that define a person, and you say, well, okay, is a person that doesn't have legs or the, who can't speak not a person? Oh, well, no, no, no. Uh, you know, the 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 this essentialistic. Um, approach to thinking I think is fundamental and I, I think one of the interesting ideas is and there's people doing research that there are basic ways that humans think about the world and that teleology and essentialism may be um, simplistic ways in which we think perhaps selection has favored this in the past as a as a quick and dirty tool to navigating our environment but which now are like our dependence on fatty sugary foods proving to be um, proving proving to be not such a good idea. And in terms of intellectual ideas, essentialism and teleology are, uh, uh, are, are not good ideas, right? That's not probably how the world works. Uh, and, but it's sort of hardwired into a lot of people. And I, when, I've, when I'm debating theists on, on, um, on Twitter, I frequently just feel like, you know, this person, they, they are not going to get past this idea of the, of everything in the universe having a purpose. They're simply not going to. They're not capable of recognizing that that may not be the case. Um, whether that's, I, I doubt that it's genetic. It's, you know, every, every trait is a complex mix of uh, genes and environment and their interaction. But uh, it seems inescapable for them. They cannot get past that basic assumption. And theology supports that, encourages that. It tells them, yes, that's right, and that purpose comes from your God. Um, that's a, a very different view of things. Essentialism, likewise. And there's just some things that you can't understand with those, with that kind of philosophical baggage. Well, gentlemen, we're starting to stretch the amount of friendly time I'm able to extract from you. So I'll finish with one quick round, if you wouldn't mind. I've got, what are your thoughts for the survival of our species? How 
do you predict we may evolve to survive a catastrophic disaster, say global warming? <laughs> I don't. I honestly, if you look at the paleontological record, every species dies. So we will at some point. I don't believe that our cultural, um, you know, we've added culture in as a very rapid form of evolution, if you will, and it's incredibly powerful. But I don't believe that that's going to, in the long run, save us. I think we will go extinct at some point, and the average lifespan of most hominin species is something in the neighborhood of half a million to a million years. Okay, and we've been around for between 100 and 250,000, depending on which yeah. which public yeah. speaker you choose to listen to. So we've still got a while left <laughs> to destroy the Earth. <laughs> well, oh, yeah. there are species that live less long, so I wouldn't <laughs> I wouldn't yeah. count yeah. on that. But, but depending uh, on the average, it's not yeah. necessarily a good plan. <laughs> yeah. I think the, the other <laughs> scary thing is if we look at most mass extinctions in the past, you know, things like that, the Permian or the, um, or the, the KT or the um, KPG, a lot of that's been associated with some pretty radical climate change. Um, Devonian, another big climate change thing. Mm-hmm. So you know, playing with big climate change is most likely evolutionary outcome is, is we go extinct. See, I'm an optimist. I, uh, I'm an absolute optimist. I read Bill Bryson's book a few years ago, A Brief History of Pretty Much Everything, and he talks about this, I think it's a, a fungus or a mold that grow or lichen that grows on a rock and... It takes 50 years to get to the size of a dinner plate. And essentially the underlying thing is nature just wants to survive and sometimes it doesn't need to do a lot. It just needs to survive. And I I think that we have this immense technology. We're talking here about Twitter. We're talking about blog posts. I've realised this year that uni students weren't born when I hit uni and I think about what uni was like 18 years ago and I think what it will be like in 20 years and I think that things are going to change and they're going to change radically I think that the best hope we have is that we you know with catastrophic climate change you will see population shrink and as long as we can maintain that genetic variation I I think it's possible but again this is not based on a huge amount of evidence other than the fact that you know I I really like it not to happen to my kids or grandkids and, and yeah. somewhere down the line. Something I would just like to, to add, we've gone through severe climate change. Um, there is There are arguments within human paleontology that that's the thing that we are adapted to, that we are highly flexible in the, the um, in our ability to cope with wide variety of environments. And certainly if you look at humans now, we live across a very broad range of, of climates. And I don't think that a simple ice age is going to do us in. I also don't think that we are immune to the large-scale forces that influence all species. And it's very easy for us to be myopic and look at our computers and think about how great we are right now and lose perspective on the real time scale that is involved here with species evolving over hundreds of thousands of years. I, I just simply don't believe that we have rendered ourselves immune to that. I don't think we will. Very well, gentlemen. I have one quick question for you. Have you got anything else you'd like to promote or shout out to before we wind up? Um, again, I'd just like to, yeah, this paper that I've published, I'll retweet it. I, I think we've also got a, a layman summary uh, that's available. I think that a lot of people are questioning, questioning this HPV vaccination. Uh, it's given to 12 or 13-year-olds, and the more I read about it, the more I think that it's it prevents cervical cancer, anal, penile, mouth, throat, and vaginal cancers. And to be honest with you, I don't think any of them sound like good cancers, if there is such a thing. <laughs> as far as, far as cancer getting... goes, they're not the ones you'd want to get. 
<laughs> no, no. If you're going to get cancer, don't get those. I that just no. Um, but and so the, lam- the layman's paper certainly does sound sound good because it's the sort of thing that we might just be able to quickly uh, copy paste and point it through to perhaps somebody who doesn't follow. I, I might even give this to my mum. Would my mum understand it? The the paper we did possibly it's addressing four questions. So it's like, does it stop infection? Does it cure cancer? And there's also we've we've written a layperson summary, so it just answers it in one sentence. Oh, that's exactly what my mum needs. <laughs> and Godfrey World. Well, I would be remiss if I didn't uh, give a shout-out to Secular Bloke. He um, uh, really stroked my ego when he was on your show on, I think, episode three. Uh, so I really need to give a, a shout-out to him and uh, recommend to everybody that they follow Secular Bloke. He's a swell fellow. I, I think I might put him on for 10% of nothing <laughs> for hooking everybody up to come on my show. But thank you very much. Uh, I encourage the four people and my mother who have downloaded this show to follow you guys. You are at Kaimatai, K-A-I-M-A-I-T-A-I. Kaimatai. And we've got Mr. Hawks and Godfrey World. I suggest you give these guys a follow, get in touch. And if you've got any questions regarding anything we've discussed, then let's have a chat about it on Twitter. I'll see you guys later on the interwebs. Thanks so much, Adam. Thanks a lot, guys. Thanks for having us on. Bye-bye. I did have a little vocal warm-up that I do with the guests just to make sure we're all on the ball. So repeat after me. This also helps me determine the lag time. A little old lady was mutilated late last night. Go. A little old lady was mutilated late last night. A little old lady was mutilated late last night. All right. I'll definitely put that in. Thank you very much. (laughs) (laughs) What was it? It was a a daily show of some sort. um... Oh, Home and Away. Yeah, home and away, and uh, I had to look that up to grasp the full significance of oh, it. Oh, so. would, would you have heard of Neighbours, perhaps? I've heard of it, but I haven't seen it. Oh, I knew I should have put in a Neighbours gag. <laughs> Very disappointed. <laughs> well, it's, it's, a, it's a bit of a shame, too, because the Australians are really good for inventing new words. I think the phrase salad dodger comes from that part of the world. Oh, salad dodger. Yeah. Which is someone who avoids salads in favour of starches and fries and meats. Oh, well, okay, that's Spain, for example. Someone who's overweight. That's more more than straight, more straightforward than I would have expected. I did ask you when, before we came on whether or not we could finish on a joke. So, does anybody have a joke? Oh. <laughs> and it's preferably a science joke. You know, when you I, said uh, we got to have a science joke. Those two words put together, the only thing I could come up with with was Ken Ham. Oh, yeah. uh, <laughs> hey, we, he, he was born here, but we're not taking responsibility. Um, oh, yes, I you have, are. <laughs> I've, I've got one related to gravity. Oh, yes, please. It's um, it's it's a classic joke, and it's tangential gravity. You on top of the Empire State Building, you have. An Australian, an Englishman, and an American. The American turns to the other two and said, it's, it's not well known, but if you stand in a very specific spot on the Empire State Building and then jump off around the 25th floor, it will, the, the wind gusts, if you get the right day, will actually blow you back up. And the English guy and he just kind of goes, no. The American goes, well, watch this. Stands right on the edge, lines himself up, takes a good minute or two, then two footed jump over the edge. And drops down 40, 30, 
29, 28, 25, and he comes back up, lands in pretty much exactly the same area. Uh, the English guy goes, wow, that's, that's a bit freaky. Um, does it always work? The American goes, yeah, sure. Does exactly the same thing. 50, 40, 30, 27, 25, and comes back up to the top again. The Englishman goes, oh, that's awesome. And so he stands, they line him up perfectly, he jumps over the edge, 40, 30, 27, 25, 20, 10, splat. Australian looks at the American goes, geez, you're a bastard, Susan, man. <laughs> ba-dum-tsh, ba-dum-tsh, all right. <laughs> I said it was tangential. <laughs> and uh, Kaimatai. Oh, well, is it a joke about an animal science joke? Sure. Sure. All right. Um, so it's, it's the parrot joke. So this... Guy gets on an aeroplane and he comes and sits down and he puts his seatbelt on and he looks around sitting to see who's sitting next to him. And there sitting next to him is a parrot. And the parrot just sort of turns its head, gazes him with that one-eyed look. And the traveler thinks, this is fine. I can work with this. But of course he's, he's feeling a little, a little thirsty. So he thinks, okay, when the stewardess comes through, I'll, I'll just grab a drink off, off her. Drinks cart comes through, and he's just about to order his drink when the parrot streams out a string of abuse at the stewardess and says that he must have a whiskey right then and there. And if the, the, the stewardess does not comply, she will be beaten and hit and kicked around at the aircraft. So the poor stewardess looks horrified and, and quickly serves the the parrot, this, this whiskey. And the guy's about to make his order when the, the, the parrot downs the whiskey and then strings off with another tirade of abuse at the poor stewardess who's starting to tremble and, and shake and the like. So the, the, this parrot insists that, again, he must have another whiskey. The guy's getting quite irritated next to him and the stewardess is getting really, really tearful, gives the parrot another another whiskey and the parrot promptly downs the thing once more. And again, he's about to say something when the parrot interrupts. And the, the, the traveller is going, no, this is not this is not good. So he thinks he'll he'll copy what the parrot did. So he starts abusing the stewardess and says that he must have his drink right then and there and if he doesn't get it, he's going to do all sorts of dire physical assault things on the stewardess. And she just runs off in tears. A minute later, two burly stewards come into the cockpit, the, sorry, the, the cabin, grab the seat with the, the parrot and the, the, the traveller, go to the back of the aircraft and fling them out the aircraft towards the ground. And as they're plummeting towards the ground, the parrot looks at the traveller one more time with his beady little parrot eye and says, you know, for a guy who can't fly, you've got a lot of balls. <laughs> <laughs> wow, well, I'm going to have to work out how to fit that into a one-hour podcast. Thanks, thanks for that. I, I mean, I'm not prone to jokes, but I looked one up. Mine's short. Did you hear about the biologist who had twins? No. She baptized one and kept the other as a control. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that nice. one's definitely going in. Thank you for that. Too soon. <laughs> Gentlemen, it's been an absolute pleasure and a real blast having you on. Thank you.